Welcome back, everyone. You're tuning into episode 33 of Health Unchained. The industry is heating up, and I'm looking forward to all of you listening to this episode on medical credentialing and career management for healthcare professionals. This is a serious pain point for many in the industry, and there are a few companies leveraging distributed ledger technology to help fix it. To get a deeper overview of the problems and solutions, you should really check out episode 31 with Anthony Bigando from ProCredX. And Tiva Health and ProCredX are both tackling similar problems with slightly different types of solutions. I really enjoyed my conversation with John Hartigan, CEO of Antiva Health, and I hope you do too. A few announcements before we get to the show. If you're new to the healthcare blockchain space, seriously check out the show notes for a link and a special promo code for a Udemy course meant for non-technical healthcare professionals. Don't hesitate to sign up. There is real value in understanding blockchain's potential impact in the industry. You can use special discount code DOGUM2019 for 75% off the regular price of the course. And you get a certificate when you complete the course. If you haven't already subscribed to Robert Miller's weekly newsletter, Beyond Blocks, you really should. It highlights the top blockchain healthcare stories every single week. It's one of my first destinations when searching for a good Health Unchained News Corner article. Bert is a senior consultant at Consensus Health and a great contributor to this community. Again, a link to the newsletter is in the show notes. It's beyondblocks.bertcmiller.com. And very importantly, I would like all of you to know that the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. All right, with that said, let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? blockchain. What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. Today's guest is John Hartigan, CEO of Antiva Health. John has a variety of experiences helping early stage startups forge strategic partnerships with many Fortune 500 companies. At Antiva Health, he is leading their go-to-market strategy and will be speaking to us today about his company's use of Hashgraph, uh, which is a different type of distributed ledger technology. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ray. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. Yeah, I appreciate your time as well. So you're the first person who's going to come and speak to us about Hashgraph. So I'm going to have a few questions about how that protocol works and why you've chosen it to be the, you know, the right protocol for Intiva Health. Sure. Um, but before we get into that, I kind of want to know a little bit about your background and also, you know, what drove you into the healthcare industry? Uh, it's a, it's a great question. And, um, my path is long and varied. Um, I think that, uh, you, you would consider me an Entrepreneur. I mean that you that word is very overused these days. I think in some ways, but uh, I was an entrepreneur before I knew I was an entrepreneur. Uh, I started my very first business when I was uh, 
15 and a half uh, just before I started driving. And uh, I used to have to have my dad take me around to, to, to do my business. I used to wash tennis courts, believe it or not, back in Southern California. I lived in an area where there were a lot of tennis courts. And uh, I had this water broom. And uh, I didn't want to work for, um, you know, 3 or $4 an hour, which was the minimum wage at that time. And somebody said, hey, why don't you wash tennis courts? And I thought, that's a pretty good idea. So I started washing tennis courts, uh, private homes. And then all of a sudden, I picked up some schools and then some municipal contracts. And next thing I know, the Newport Beach Tennis Club is calling me. And I, this was about a year and a half later. So I'm in high school. And, and now I've got something 40 uh, tennis courts I'm washing. I got four guys working for me and um, it, it just blew up. And my parents came to me and said, listen, we love the fact that you are into this and, and that you've built this business, uh, but you got to go to school and you got to finish school. And uh, so we need you to, you know, figure something out. So I ended up selling the business to a guy, made a little bit of coin wow. and, you know, put it back on my school. And that kind of started my whole thing. Um, yeah, so kind of funny. And then, uh, so then I, you know, I went to uh, university and did the education. And then I went into corporate world for a while. And I went, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I definitely gravitate towards uh, um, sales and marketing. And um, uh, I went into sales and did well in sales. Uh, and I know you had a company where you uh, had accessories for iPhones. And yeah, like that. that was that was actually my last company before this gig, which was. Um, it's called Mobile Cloth, and uh, it was. I started it from a ground-up concept, and ended up uh, at the at the height uh, just before I sold it. It was uh, we were distributed in over 34 countries. Uh, I worked. I had partnerships with a number of Fortune 500 companies uh, to to distribute the product to employees, etc., for uh, promotional materials because you could print on these these uh, special cleaning cloths for iPads and tablets. And it just it, again, it blew up. It was it was timing was right. It, it did well. And so I sold that and, um, I'm in Austin, Texas, and this is a software town. And I had a lot of friends who were, uh, founders and, uh, and I was kind of looking for my next thing. And I said, Hey, you know, I really want to get into software and, 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 you know, see what this is all about. And I had a friend said, Hey, you need to talk to these guys. It was called something else at the time. There was three founders and, uh, so I started working with them to do strategic relationships for them, early strategic relationships. And that was about three years ago. And I just kept, they kept promoting me. And uh, earlier this year, they made me CEO. So it an, it's an honor uh, and to, to be CEO. Uh, and um, I'm really proud of what we built over the last three years and getting back to the platform and, and Hashgraph, et cetera. Uh, we really have a, a cutting edge technology and use case. And uh, so that's kind of how I arrived here. Well, congratulations on the promotion. I'm sure it uh, sounds like it's very well deserved. And let's talk a little bit about what Antiva Health is or what, what you're trying to do. Sure. So Antiva Health is a career and credential management platform for licensed medical professionals and the administrators that they have to communicate those credentials back and forth with at the facilities and the other stakeholders, uh, insurance companies, uh, labs, any other stakeholders that they have to communicate those 
credential documents back and forth to. Um, many people don't understand kind of what the credentialing world is like, but I can tell you this, uh, it takes a physician on average almost three months to be verified by a facility in order to see patients and begin billing. So the, from the moment that they are hired, they have to wait three months before they can actually start making money. Now, it's ridiculously analog, it's ridiculously uh, antiquated. And the reason they have to do this is because a facility has to do a, their due diligence on a new hire physician, um, because obviously they're in a very uh, um, risky position and they have to mitigate their risk, which means that they have to go through 25 to 35 different credential documents, things like their, their medical license, their DEA certifications, their, uh, you know, their advanced life support certifications, all of these things that a doctor needs to prove that they are in fact up to date and compliant with all those things so that they can go in and start seeing patients and that the facility is covered if there's any adverse effects or anything bad happens. Um, that's right. a billions of dollars problem. Right. And just to jump in there, I actually was lucky enough to do a demo uh, see a demo of your platform actually. And, you know, just to give the audience kind of an idea of how many different types of documents there are, like you mentioned a few DEA number, a license, education, reference letters, hospital affiliations, state applications, um, the office of inspector general copies, uh, you know, initial appointments, competency evaluations, performance evaluation, malpractice history. So there's tons of different components to this which is why it takes three months in its current state. And what I believe you're trying to do is cut that three months down into what's your target timeline for minutes. 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 Yeah. Um, so, you know, I've, I've used the analogy like, uh, you know, if you've ever had to go to the DMV or the department of motor vehicles to get your, your driver's license, well, imagine doing that 25 times a year or every other year in order to get stuff done. That's, that's what they have to deal with. It's, it's, it's arduous 8.7 hours a week on average physicians spend on non-patient non-clinical paperwork just to remain compliant. It's a, it's a billions, hundreds of billions of dollars in, in administrative, just red tape. And I'm um, sure they can be spending their time elsewhere more efficiently. Yeah, yeah. So, so the platform is um, the tool set is designed uh, as you saw the interface, which which allows uh, a very easy, user friendly, and easy way to keep track of all of those different documents and credentials. And then we have a system, a distributed ledger technology system, um, based on Hashgraph, that allows us. Once a credential packet is completed by a, uh, a credentialing manager, they can submit that entire packet to a distributed ledger. Okay, And, and this is radically, I cannot overstate what a radical technology this is, far and above what's going on in blockchain, actually, and, I'll, and I'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but what ends up happening is this entire credential packet is put into uh, our distributed ledger technology hash graph, and it is immutably date and timestamped. And this is really important. So in essence, what we've created is a digital notarized original copy 
of a verified credential packet. So if Mayo Clinic did this, for example, and they went through that process and they they sent it to our DLT and it was date and time stamped, it's a closed loop system and it, and it creates an unchangeable record of file for that particular physician's credential packet. And so at that point, any other credential manager could view that information, see the immutable date and time stamp on it, the digital notarized original copy, and they can take that information as truth, as verified truth at that point in time. Now, there may be time that has passed since that credentialing event, and they still have to credential that individual doctor. So they don't have to review the entire 25 documents. They don't have to go back to the primary source on they don't have to recreate the wheel on each one of those documents. They can take the information that they have as a notarized original copy and know that that information is correct and valid. And then if they have to, like, let's say one of those documents has expired, then then they will have to go back as a primary source. They clone that information. They create a new point in time, a new verification point, and they finish the verification of that document. And then they create, now you have, two points in time on that doctor, and then three points in time. So it creates a immutable history similar to a credit report, but in DLT. So over time, a provider will have multiple packages, credential packages in his or her history, and they can manage all of that via your interface in Tiva Health. Um, yes, but- well, and that's important to know that they, they, they can't change it Right. So this right. is important. It's immutable. So so whatever's in that record's in that record. The facilities and the credentialing managers will be able to add to it in the future. Um, and you can add to like, let's say there is some kind of a dispute, just like in a credit report it, and the doctor wants to speak to it. The doctor can put a uh, an addendum or a note into their record, but they just add to it. They can't take anything out of it. So there's a full uh, transparency on that doctor's reputation. Right. When I say manage uh, their profile, it doesn't mean they can go and edit anything that's already been notarized on the Hashgraph blockchain. Exactly. You're yeah. absolutely right. But they can manage all the other certificates, but, et cetera, and keep them up to date. Right. Yes. And those extra uh, amendments will be uh, will actually generate a new package, a, a future pa- or a present package. Exactly right. So I do have a question about that process, though. So the first... Mayo Clinic, the first facility that wants to do this work, what's their incentive to actually do all the primary resource validation for the first time? Because sure. it sounds like that's a lot of work for the first for the first provider. Well, here's the, I mean, yeah, you're right, but but the thing is, is they're doing it anyways. So I mean, they they, they do it. It's it's a normal course of action for them. Um, and so there's there's different um, there's different reasons they do it. One is because if they do it then it saves their own credentialing managers on their own providers uh, time on their own providers because then they have a digital notarized copy of the last time they did the credentialing. Right. Right. So let's say an administrator left and then they had a new one and they're like, well, did they do that? Didn't they do that? They have an app, you know, it's a much more efficient way for them to move forward and manage those credentials even internally in their own organization. So, so there's a lot of benefit just from a, uh, uh, workflow and uh, efficiency standpoint. Um, we, we, yeah, we also work with CVOs, which are credential verification organizations, and they absolutely um, have a 
a benefit of they they eliminate redundancy because they they credential numerous providers across numerous facilities in some cases across state lines and so if they can have an immutable record on that doctor they won't they have to re even a CVO who is handling the same provider at different facilities has to re-credential that individual at each facility. So the CBOs can reuse that package exactly. and make their lives less. Exactly. I understand that. The reason I kind of asked that question is because I also interviewed a different credentialing blockchain organization, um, also you know building their platform currently called Professional Credentials Exchange. You might have mm-hmm. heard of them. So their model is a little different in that instead of having it available for that provider to share with any other facility, they're creating a sort of marketplace where different facilities can charge for different components of the credentialing package so that those facilities are incentivized to do that primary resource validation because then they can, in the future, get paid for it by a different facility. So it's a little bit of a different model. I don't really know what's it's going to work. Better. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, I, I, yeah, no, I, we, we were, we thought long and hard about our model. So uh, this, this is really critical. I mean, I'm going to tell you in the healthcare space, we are approaching the business model entirely differently. Um, and we believe this is one of the reasons that we've been successful and we will continue to be successful in this space. We do not charge the doctor or other licensed medical professional nurse or mid-level to use our platform at all. 100% free, they can use it. And that includes free CME and a bunch of other things that they need for their careers. We also do not charge the facilities uh, to manage the credentials in our platform. Uh, and that tool set will always remain free in our platform. 100% fully robust, no freemium model, they get to use it. And it's very important that it's that way because we want the barriers to entry extremely low in order to make a much more efficient credentialing system. We make money in other ways. Um, we have, like I mentioned, a CME platform, uh, continuing medical education for those of you who aren't familiar with CME um, and CE or credentialing um, uh, continuing education. And those are grant funded. And how that works, it's like the Medscape model basically is that uh, a, an education company comes out with a, uh, a program for CME and then they get it funded by a grant. And part of that grant funding goes towards distri- online distribution and marketing because what they want to do is drive certain populations of doctors to that education. We do that. We have large numbers of doctors on our platform. Uh, and they take lots of CME. And so we have the ability to drive traffic to those courses that are grant funded. And then we get a portion of that grant. So that's one of the ways we make money. We also have a very robust careers and jobs portal uh, matching system. If, if providers are open to recruiting, we have a passive and active recruiting platform uh, similar to like LinkedIn, for example, um, and facilities and, uh, uh, and offices or healthcare companies, ch- uh, we charge them to be on that platform and to recruit and or to post jobs, et cetera. So, so we monetize it through a marketplace model where uh, we use these goods and services that they are all already using and needing. Uh, we monetize it that way rather than 
charging for the utility of our of our tool set. I think that's a great idea because whatever you can do to minimize the barriers for entry and allowing people to you know get started for free, both facilities and the you know practitioners, uh, will definitely increase your network size. So um, that makes sense to me. Let's talk a little bit more about Hashgraph and how that works. So I understand, I'm not an expert on Hashgraph. <laughs> so uh, my understanding is that you would have multiple nodes that would have to be permissioned into the network, right? So does that mean each of these facilities act as nodes? Or what's who or how is the data getting verified across the, the distributed sure. ledger? So you're, so you're absolutely correct. Um, so we have multiple nodes. Uh, and as our uh, as our relationship with facilities and healthcare organizations grow, they are permissioned into the system uh, as a uh, as one of our independent nodes. Um, and so that uh, again, it is a permissive ledger because this is very private uh, information, uh, and it wouldn't make sense to be on a public ledger, so to speak. Um, and, and so those partners that we have, uh, we have key partners in all different kinds of industries, large and small. We have, we have, uh, small practice management companies. We have large hospitals and facilities, and we make, uh, arrangements with them to become one of our node providers that then run the algorithm, uh, in order to make the system more robust and, and across uh, a larger and uh, larger and larger footprint uh, in order to to bring more robustness to to the infrastructure. Is there any advantage of being a larger size organization? Like, are there any privileges that a bigger organization will have as a bigger node, or does each organization have equal rights or voting privileges? Yeah. So 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 the so there. Um, so the clients don't have any voting privileges as far as that's concerned. What we're trying to do is have, um, or, or not what we're trying to do, but what we are doing is um, we are establishing a independent network and infrastructure that the algorithm can run on in a efficient and fast manner okay and those all these different independent parties that are running the nodes uh contribute to the transparency and also the um the robustness because the more nodes you have the more fair the system is the more robust the system is the more uh, uh the less chance of uh compromise on any of the nodes uh and so so that's really what it's about it's about getting um uh, as many um, healthcare organizations and other stakeholders to be part of the infrastructure as possible. Um, and so to your point, no, the governance model doesn't work that way. There's no, in, nobody influences the system more than anybody else. The algorithm itself is run on these nodes as an independent, fully transparent, decentralized ledger technology. What does it take to become a node? Do they have to have a server on their end? Is it like a heavy hardware requirement or is it pretty lightweight? Yeah, so so um, it, it is pretty lightweight. Now, now to be honest with you, some of this is proprietary information that we only share with our different, um, uh, with our different clients and our different key partners. Um, you can find, I can tell you this, you can find information out about how Hashgraph operates 
what kind of node requirements there are. It, it's a very light, believe it or not, it's a far lighter program than blockchain as far as the requirements are concerned. It does not operate on proof of work or proof of stake. Mm -hmm. um, it's a virtual voting algorithm. Again, these are going to be concepts that a lot of your listeners are not uh, used to or aware of. Um, it, it is, um, it's far, far faster than, um, than blockchain. Um, and because of the fact it does not um, use proof of work or proof of stake, you do not need these massive rigs uh, to do computations. Uh, and so it, it's a much lighter program. So, so the, the equipment requirements are far less. Um, it's far more environmentally friendly. Uh, it doesn't use uh, these crazy amounts of energy. Um, it, it's very light. Right. And for the audience, there's a the specific protocol. I think it's called Gossip About Gossiping. And yes. I think, um, you know, do a Google search on that. It's pretty interesting. Um, yeah, I agree. Sure. You know, there's some... There's Dr. Lehman Baird is the one who developed Hashgraph. We we are one of the we are actually the first uh, uh, application to launch on, an enterprise DApp on uh, Hashgraph. Oh, uh, first met, healthcare one or first overall? First wow. overall. Wow. And, that's, that's uh, and now again, we're on a permissive ledger. They have something called Hedera Hashgraph, which is the public ledger, which is going to open this summer. But we were the very first algorithm to be built on on the Hashgraph protocol, uh, and um, we we work closely with uh, Lehman and Mance, the CEO, um, in the early days to get our our program built and off the ground. And we're and again, we're the very first decentralized ledger technology that actually takes packets of digital information, megabytes of information, and puts them into a digital ledger. You can't do that in blockchain because it can't, it can't handle the speed throughput and it can't handle the size of the files. Mm -hmm. um, so we're not just taking a, a, an identifier number like a track and trace system. We're actually taking real files and putting them into the distributed ledger. And that is a huge, significant difference to, to what others are trying to do with track and trace with documentation on another database. What they'll do is they'll have identifiers on the blockchain, but then they relate to a database that's either centralized or uh, has another kind of protocol on it, but it's actually not in blockchain. Right. Yeah. They just have like, it, it points to the, Correct. To the file source. Yeah. And also for the audience, Hashgraph is patented. However, it is open review so anyone can go and look at the actual code online so it's not like a hidden right. code so um, it'll help make you feel better to know that there's no backdoor code that's right it's a 100% closed loop system um, there's mathematical proofs published there as a matter of fact their patent application is available to analyze and read and you know uh, uh, you know for those mathematicians out there um, this is a, a significant leap in technology, and, and I'm very excited to be um, involved at this early stage. Um, Hashgraph is, is impressive. I agree. What do you think? Do you think that Hashgraph will actually, and I don't want to make this all about Hashgraph. I think sure. we should go back into the, the no, no, it's, clinical it's, side of things, but it, this is interesting. Um, do you think that blockchain system like ethereum bitcoin will those become obsolete or do they have specific use cases in their own right I, I, yeah i think they do have their i mean i think that uh for cryptocurrencies and and you know they and and the fact that they've been around for a while 
Um, I think they will continue to have their use cases, smart contracts, um, et cetera. Um, I do believe that um, consensus algorithms, um, they've evolved. Uh, they will continue to evolve. Uh, and this is just the beginning. Uh, I think like with any other technology, I think, I think that, um, you know, traditional blockchain will, excuse me, will stick around. Um, but better technologies are being developed. And, and I mean, in five years, I, I can't even imagine what's going to be coming out. But, um, but Hashgraph is a, is a definitely a next generation consensus algorithm. Uh, and then the thing about Hashgraph that's very impressive, unlike blockchain, is its uh, robustness and its scalability uh, and its storage and speed capabilities. And, and that was one of, the, one of the critical flaws with the original blockchain is, um, and, and again, you can, your listeners can re research this, but one of the reasons that they had to do proof of work and proof of stake was because of the forking problem. Uh, it, 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 forking made blockchain unstable. And so they had to use, a lot of people are unaware of why they do these computations, right? Why do they do these radical uh, mining rigs with the, for the computations? And that actually is to keep the system stable and to slow it down because the forking was getting out of hand like a hedra uh, because what is supposed to happen is uh, you get, if you get a, a conflicting result at the exact same time, it creates a fork. Yeah. And the idea is that as the computations happen, that eventually the incorrect fork will die off and then the chain that's correct will continue. The problem was that if they, if they didn't have it slowed down, uh, it, 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 would, it would start forking too fast. And when it started forking too fast, you, you, this, the, the system became unstable. And so they had to start slowing it down and they, they came up with a solution of proof of work, proof of stake. And, um, and so many people don't even know that's why that is. Uh, Hedera does not have that. Uh, Hashgraph does not have that problem uh, because it's not. It, it doesn't work the same way. Do you ever see you moving into the public Hedera Hashgraph, or do you feel like it'll remain in the permis permitted or permission? Yeah. So, so um, there are there are specific use cases where uh, it does not make sense to be on a public ledger. Um, so, because for example, right now you can see. Uh, you know, Bitcoin transactions moving from one address to another address. You can see, you know, oh, this guy just moved five million, whatever, over mm -hmm. here, whatever. Well, we're actually putting in, you know, information, private information into this, and and to have a public ledger viewing uh, verification transactions uh, that may be able to figure out who the identifiers are and what's happening in the space. Um, there's all kinds of of, of uh, privacy problems with that. So it doesn't really make sense for our use case with credentials to be done that way. However, our algorithm works. It's agnostic. I mean, yes, we are using it in the user case for credentialing, right? But but our system works as a digital uh, notarization system for documents and other types of files. It doesn't not have to be credentials. It could be, it could be legal filings for, as a matter of fact, we're talking to... Um, uh, I'm not going to say which state, but we're talking to a state right now uh, to develop a, a record of file for their for the Secretary of State for UCC filings. Um, and, and in essence, what they need is a, a digital notarization. And that's what our system does. So certain use cases would make sense on the public ledger, and we can easily roll out that way. 
Uh, other use cases such as the credentialing makes sense on a private ledger or permissive ledger. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. Walmart recently announced that it has joined the MediLedger project, a consortium of organizations making pharmaceutical supply chains more transparent and decentralized. Other members include Pfizer, McKesson, Amerisource, Bergen, and Cardinal Health. Health and wellness accounted for $35 billion of U.S. sales in 2018 for Walmart. That's about 10% of the company's total sales. The consortium is led by blockchain firm Chronicled, which is based in San Francisco, California. They plan to kick off a pilot project with the FDA this month in June 2019. MediLedger's main focus is the verification of drugs that are returned to be resold, which is actually an amount worth over $6 billion in the industry. The challenge of this project will be the fact that Walmart will need to be more transparent about its inventory and supply chain. In a competitive retail market, many companies prefer not to share their data with others. But with blockchain technology, it's possible to only share the absolute minimum required to create a more trusted supply chain. A link to the Coindesk article can be found in the show notes. Now back to the conversation with John Hartigan from Intiva Health. What do you think are the main barriers to distributed ledger technology and awareness in healthcare? Well, I think really uh, the first one is just status quo. Um, you know, the, the healthcare space is, is, is slow to adopt. Uh, and it's because it's a very litigious space. Uh, the other thing is too, is there's a lot of money flying around. Uh, I mean, it's, what it's so massive, $3.3 trillion, right? I mean, and so there are a lot of people making money from waste and inefficiency. That's the bottom line. And so, so we have to go in and say, Hey, we're going to, you know, our system is going to take out two full-time employees in your credentialing office. How do you feel about that? Now, we obviously don't put it that way, but we say, look, we can make this so much more efficient that you can then reallocate these full-time employees to better patient care or better patient satisfaction or, 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 or sales or whatever. Or better uh, provider experience because the yeah, experience exactly. for the provider to get onboarded into a facility, I'm sure could be improved. Exactly. And so, so, so there's status quo and then there's just education. I mean, to really understand and accept the technology. Uh, and we're approaching that by a couple of ways. We're, we're going to the standard bearers. There is an organization called JCO uh, who kind of sets the best practices for facility credentialing. And so we've, we've been, we've opened a dialogue with JCO to what is say, JCO? Hey, yeah, it's called JCO. Okay. Uh, it's, it's called the Joint Commission. It's okay. short as JCO, uh, and they they establish the credentialing standards for facilities uh, or best practices. And um, so we're talking to them, saying, "Hey, this technology's here. Uh, you guys want to get out ahead of this, and you want to understand it." So education is another one. It's just just really this radical leap in technology and understanding. I mean, they've been doing credentialing the same way for fifty years. Right. So we have to kind of say, hey, there's a whole different way of doing it. And that's, you know, it's going to, it takes a little time for them to kind of warm up to that idea. Do you think the providers are against this for any reason? Um, I, I mean, 
I think that the ones who may have some <laughs> some some bad marks in their records, uh, they might not be so uh, excited about it, right? But I mean, for the general public, this is going to be a, a very beneficial thing. Um, uh, we we speed it up, we reduce human error, uh, we make it far less costly, and uh, we hope that's going to translate into better patient care and and, and lower patient costs. Do you can you tell me some of the current company partners that you have or major customers that are sure. using the platform? Well, I think um, <clears throat> the one the, the the biggest partner we have and the one that really stands out for us is the American Heart Association uh, and the American Stroke Association. Uh, they are, I think, the 16th largest not-for-profit in the United States. Uh, they have 33 million uh, volunteers around the world, uh, and they have 1.9 million professional members. Um, they are a huge partner of ours um, from an education standpoint. They provide a lot of our continuing medical education, and um, we are um, – we, we provide the Intiva Health Platform as a value-added member benefit for their professional members, for them to be able to manage their credentials uh, and uh, keep track of, of their compliance. So, so that's a huge, huge partnership for us. Uh, really takes a small startup you know, of 25 and puts us on the map. Uh, and it was a huge feather in our cap, big endorsement. It took, it, it took over a year of them vetting us uh, just, just for them to play ball. So. That's a big one. Uh, a couple of others, uh, National Osteoporosis Foundation. Uh, we work with uh, staffing agencies like MedVIP, um, University of Florida. Um, uh, there's, there's quite a few. I mean, the, the list kind of goes on and on. Uh, we, we, we work very closely with some of our uh, partners here in our backyard in Austin, like Austin Emergency Center was one of our very first clients, um, and uh, they've been great. Uh, so yeah, we have we have quite a um, a mix of large and small, uh, and I, I think that's a testament to kind of the scalability of the platform. Yeah, that's really interesting. I just had a thought, and I'm thinking, you know, you mentioned how it's similar to LinkedIn, and I wonder if you know there was some way in the future to have Antiva Health as part of a LinkedIn module where you know you have this healthcare yeah, type of yeah, I, I think it's a great idea. So. So um, LinkedIn doesn't really focus on medical professionals, mm-hmm. um, it, but but there are others that do. Like uh, there's one called Doximity, uh, which is a, one that we we admire. They're kind of they call themselves kind of the social network for uh, medical professionals, mm-hmm. uh, and we actually had discussions about creating a, a, like an in-app credential management platform powered by Antiva Health. Um, and I think that absolutely, we, we, those are those are opportunities that we uh, that we constantly look for, and uh, is a great idea. And and LinkedIn would be great, especially if they move more into the medical space. Can you tell me a little bit more, or just describe your technology stack? So you have Hashgraph as your verification protocol, but um, you know any other details you can provide? Um. Yeah. Um, I mean, I. I I, I do want to, you know, keep some of our secret sauce secret, but but I can tell you we're built on a force platform. So so we are built on a Salesforce database protocol, uh, and our interface um, plugs in. Um, it's a, this is really where uh, what we built is 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 that bridge between our Salesforce platform and the Hashcraft uh, protocol. Um, it is. 
that's that's actually another part of the fact that kind of leads uh, or lends itself to the value of our technology, which is that <clears throat> we are out of the box with our platform. We work very well with Salesforce. Um, and so Salesforce uh, custom development as well as the, all the Salesforce modules, which which means that we can license um, our, our technology perhaps in the future. Because one of the one of the 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 strategic plans for Intiva Health is is um, or Intiva is to move into other verticals. So hmm. Intiva Health is the beginning. It's the most complex, but there are many professional and administrator relationships in other verticals. So, for example, law, uh, accounting, finance, architecture, oil and gas, education, um, and so um, we built the platform. We architected the platform to be able to uh, have the flexibility to, to stand up these other platforms uh, using the same um, Hashgraph technology. Uh, and so, so that's really a, a, a big part of our growth strategy. Interesting. I'm just comparing um, what you said to ProCredX, Professional Cred- Credentials Exchange, who I also interviewed. Um, Anthony Bagando also said the same thing. They're also interested in having multiple industries as you know, using that platform initially with the medical industry, but sure. in the future other industries. Sure. Um, but they haven't actually, as far as I know, uh, they haven't actually selected their blockchain of choice yet. So it's a uh, challenge. I mean, there's a lot of hype out there. There, there. There's a lot of hype. And I can sure. tell you, I mean, there really is. And, um, and it's one thing to say it, right. We saw a lot of stuff go on last year and a lot of white papers and a lot of, you know, blockchains going to fix every, you know, human ailment and, and problem in the world. And it's one thing to write it into a, a white paper and theorize about it. And it's another thing to do it. And uh, we know because we did it. Uh, and it, it, it took a lot of time and a lot of money. Um, but, but we did it. Um, and there are some excellent use cases for blockchain. Um, and, and there are some there, and, and frankly, there are some good blockchains. As a matter of fact, you know, um, uh, and, and I'm not going to promote any other blockchains here, but there are some out there that have, sure. that have proven themselves to be robust uh, and and have some very good capabilities. Um, but they are for specific use cases. Understood. And so your product is actually called ReadyDoc, right? Or that's like the name of the platform that yeah. provides yeah. it. Yeah, that's the, it's a play on words, right? So it's a, yeah. it's Ready Ready Doctor and Ready sure. Document. Uh, and uh, so, so, um, yes, absolutely. That is the name. And the idea is that because if you are a medical administrator, what you really need is you, you need to staff your, your facility, your hospital, and you can't do that until you get them through the credentialing process. And so we call them ready doc, because it's like, if you use our system the way it's intended and they're in the system, you're going to have a ready doctor. Okay, you're, you, you, they're going to be able to go to work much faster than somebody who's not using our system and isn't already in our system. And that can make the difference as to if they're going to start on, you know, June 15th or if they're going to start on July 1st. And I'm going to tell you that two weeks time span for a practice manager or for a hospital is huge, right? Yeah. I mean, that, it could be hundreds of thousands of dollars in procedures that they're, that they're losing out. As a matter of fact... In a three-month time span, a hospital loses in revenue $360,000 when a doctor isn't able to see patients in bill um, because, because they just can't they, – they, they've hired this individual, so they've locked up that position, but they can't 
let him bill or her bill until they get through the credentialing process. So the clock's ticking, right? But nothing's happening. And that's probably just the average. If you think about a seasoned professional who's oh, got more experience, it might take even longer because they oh, have to go through yeah, more documents. A cardiologist, I mean, a, a heart surgeon or a brain surgeon right. or a pediatric surgeon. I mean, you you could be in the millions easily. Right. Um, and, and so if you added that up for every time a doctor has to go through the credentialing process, starts a new job, it's a hundred. It, we're we're literally talking about hundreds of billions of dollars in lost revenue in one year, um, and it's mind boggling because we, you know, then you wonder this, this is this part of the equation is why you get these like ten dollar Tylenols when you go to the hospital. I mean, there, there's this craziness when it comes to what the cost structure is and the behind the scenes. You don't want to see how the sausage is made. It's crazy. Yeah, there's that lack of transparency with pricing, which is crazy too. But I think like recently, um, you know, there's been some regulation to at least sort of force hospitals to reveal their pricing. But I don't think that's as effective as people think it is. Well, it's it's really. I mean. It, I'll be honest, it's not the hospital's fault in a lot of cases. I would say the system's it's, fault. It's the, yeah, the, it's, it's, a, it's a systemic problem. Mm-hmm. This this thing that we're talking about, and, and we could go into a lot of discussion about it, but but we talked about the model and how we're not charging doctors and we're not charging hospitals. And it's, it's really important to understand that because, see, about, you know, when the Affordable Care Act came out, uh, they were promoting EHRs, right? Electronic health records, electronic medical records. And they said, oh, this is going to be great because what this is going to do, it's going to streamline the system with these patient records and it's going to be so much more efficient. But here's what happened. We now have over 700 different kinds of EHRs and EMRs. Now, why did that happen? It's because all of these great software companies found profit motive in trying to push their own individual EHR or EMR that didn't talk to each other because guess what? Why would they want them to talk to each other? Right. Exactly. They want to paid. Yeah. So, and there's nothing. It's not like they tried to do it that way. It's just that this, what we call the healthcare system in the United States, is not really. It was never architected to be a system, right? It was never. It was never like, okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to lay out this really nice, efficient system with these roads here and these things here. No, no, no. It was just grown up organically, patchwork, and it's just gotten like this crazy out of control competing system. And so you have to address that as much as you need to be able to come up with good technology. You need to be able to address the practical business model in such a way that you don't form more silos of information in the healthcare system. I agree. And I think the, you know, the ethos of blockchain and distributed ledger technology is about that transparency. And I hope that my feeling is that's what we're building now. Like people like you uh, and other guests that I have on the show, they're, they're building that new infrastructure for our actual healthcare system. At least that's my, my hope. Yeah, right? I think so too. And I, and I hope so. I, I think that we have to reevaluate how we charge, like who do we charge? How do we charge? And why do we charge? Because, and because what we charge, how much we charge them too. Yeah. Well, that's as much of the, that's as much of the practical, um, uh, growth and, um, uh, sharing, ecosystem uh as as the actual technology we have to approach the way that we monetize differently um sharing information makes it more that's the other reason they don't share information right because like even with credentialing um different facilities pay for a SaaS software right software as a service or or a platform and then they say oh well okay 
I've got my doctors on this system and there's silos of information because a doctor might work at three or four different places, right? At the same time. But guess what? There's a file over there on the doctor and there's a file over there on the doctor and there's a file over there and there's a file over there. And they're not sharing information because they're like, well, we pay for this service and we're not going to share information with the hospital across the street because they're our competitor. But the funny thing about that is if you use a system like ours, right, you have one doctor tapped into all four of these locations and they can update information for that doctor and they can help each other. So let's say one facility has the CPR card that that everybody needs and they upload it. Now, they don't can't see each other, so they don't even know they're That's an important them. part of it, right? Yeah. yeah. So as soon as they update it, right, all of a sudden, all four of them can see this information securely and instantaneously and they all benefit from it. And, and it, this is a huge shift, right? Because before it, that doctor would be called by all four different administrators. Hey, where's your CPR card? Hey, where's your CPR card? Right. You're basically just removing redundancies. Like it's it's quite that simple. And I think it's brilliant. It's really important uh, for the industry, for patients too. I mean, you know, that, that one cardiologist or brain surgeon that couldn't get hired because they weren't credentialed, you know, that could have been a life potentially of a specialist for, you know, because the specialist wasn't able to perform that surgery. Agreed. Um, and, and, and you know what? I mean, look, w look, we are a for-profit business. That's absolutely true and, and et cetera. But the bigger implications to this is efficiency and time savings and sometimes critical time savings. The way we see this, I mentioned earlier, a doctor spends almost nine hours a week on non-patient, non-clinical paperwork. Okay, that's an, almost an entire day. And, I, you know, you, you probably are aware that doctors, they work like 70 hours a week, man. I mean, they're, yeah. they're killing themselves. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you a question. I mean, this is just a really basic question. Okay, you need, you're, you, you, you need to go see the oncologist because they found something, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but if, if, if Intiva was able to give them back four of those nine hours a week, right? And they were able to sleep one hour more the night before, or they were able to take 30 more minutes to look at your, you know, your MRI or your, your, your x-ray or scan, and they were able to make a better diagnosis for you or a loved one. I mean, that's really where we see the, 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 the real value here. Uh, I mean, you know, of totally. course, you know, but that, I mean, that's the essence of what we're trying to do is just to cut out the, the waste and the redundancy and, and the, the burden on these physicians. Absolutely. They didn't go to all that training and schooling to, you know, fill out forms repetitively, yeah, like the same correct. forms again. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so I have a question now about um, your Intiva token. So tell me a little bit more about that. What's the vision behind the token? Is it available to purchase now or how does that work? No, so so we minted the token last year. the The token sale it, uh, is it was over, um, and you know what we did was we actually uh, just for clarity, we, we sold it as a reg, under a Reg D raise to only to accredited investors, which because we we you know we had to be careful with SEC regulations, of course, etc. And we sold uh, we actually sold uh, shares of of stock, and then the the token was issued as a, a shareholder benefit. Um, the, the concept with the token is that it is um, a mechanism for rewards. So the, the, the way that the Intiva Health platform works most efficiently is if 
um, the information is updated regularly and, um, and in a timely manner. So, for example, you you've maybe are involved with an airline's rewards points system or a Hilton Honors. Multiple ones, sure. Like okay. So it works in a very similar way. So we will give physicians and licensed medical professionals uh, TIVA tokens. Now, this is, this is uh, something that is not integrated into the platform yet. We have it ready to go, but we have not put it in place, and there's, there's a reason for that. But we have this ready to roll uh, very soon. And the idea is that when they sign up for a, uh, an account, right, we'll give them five TIVA tokens. And when they upload their first documents, we'll give them 10 TIVA tokens. And then when they do certain things, we, we, it, it's basically a gamification of the platform. Not that we really need it, it, but it's like putting cheese on your broccoli, right? Sure. I mean, it just makes it a little bit more fun. Sure. And then they can take those tokens and they can go and spend them in our marketplace and get and, and you know use them to take CME courses that cost some money or maybe offset the cost of uh, medical malpractice insurance. Um, or they can use it in a number of different ways um, that we have, have determined would be beneficial for them. So very similar to an arcade, you know, um, they'll also be able to purchase tokens at some point where, where there'll be like a, a separate exchange. This is, again, this is our vision for, for how we're going to use it. But, but it's really about, so, so what we're doing is we're incentivizing them to be more healthy by eating their broccoli, right? Um, so, hey, doctor, if you stay organized and you keep these documents updated, this is good for you, right? And we're also going to give you some, some tokens in order to make it more fun and to keep that going, to incentivize that behavior. We also can provide and do provide tokens for administrators because like I mentioned earlier about how if you have four facilities or five facilities, right, and we incentivize them, hey, when you get that documents, that doctor's document, if you upload it, guess what? All five now have that, you know, the doctor has the document and all the other four facilities have the document. So we're incentivizing them to keep the veracity and the volume, variety and the speed of that data moving through the platform and therefore it benefits everybody in the platform having the most up-to-date information. How can Intiva improve telehealth adoption? Um, perfect, perfect use case for Intiva. So uh, one of the biggest challenges for telehealth is credentialing across state lines. So because, you know, if I'm talking to you, right, and I'm saying, hey, Ray, you know, you've got this thing on the side of your head and whatever, and I'm in Oklahoma and you're in New York, I got to be credentialed in Oklahoma. Wherever I'm talking right. patients, I'm supposed to be credentialed. And every so states run, or, 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 or I should say this, the regulations are state by state. It's not a federal thing. Do you think that regulation will ever change? No. Or, no. Okay. No, because because – because the states aren't going to let it go. I mean, that's, you know, it's constitutional. It's like, this is the way it is. And, you know, let me tell you something. If they ever tried to take it away from, like, I live in Texas, man, there'd be a war. <laughs> so uh, Texas is one of those states that, like, you know, they're not going to, don't mess with Texas when it comes to that kind of thing. So, no, I do not. Um, they are trying to standardize things. Like, they have this, you know, uh, you know the NPI number, and, and, and they're trying to do some things. But, I don't see it happening, and it, and it has to do with it has to do with power and budgets, and and that's not going to change. That's fair enough. Were there any events or announcements in the healthcare blockchain space that was particularly surprising to you? So 
Well, I, I'm going to say just general trend. Um, last year, you know, if you went to any events or, or were out there, anybody who's in the blockchain space, it was crazy. I mean, it was the wild west. It was, I saw some of the strangest things I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and, um, and there were a lot of vaporware projects out there, unfortunately. Um, and so if you were to say, you know, what's, what do you think about that? I think it's actually a good thing. Um, from last year to this year, in the span of 12 months, uh, so many of those ridiculous projects have have vaporized. Now, I, I, I do want to be fair. I think there were some great ideas out there. It's just that, you know, having a conceptual great idea doesn't mean it's it's going to work out the way you think it's going to work out, right? Because there are limitations to what this technology can do and where it is in its in its development. So I think I think the last 12 months, the crypto winter, whatever you want to call it, um, I think it's been ben very beneficial to projects such as ours because it really um, it separated out the 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 vaporware from the real projects, the people that were doing uh, real work uh, and. And I think this is good. I think also the left, the new regulation um, that is being uh, put in by SEC and uh, and um, other agencies to protect consumers. I think those are good steps uh, for for blockchain. I think it's good steps for consumers, um, and I think it, it it gives legitimacy to blockchain as a technology and DLT as a technology. I do agree with you. This year has been more uh, realistic. And I think the, you know, even those companies that are seem like vaporware, I think they had good intentions, most of them. Uh, they just, you know, couldn't execute. And it's not Absolutely. easy. 90% of startups fail anyways, blockchain or not. So Yeah, yeah. And, and that's not uncommon. Um, it was very acute because a lot of money flowed in very yeah. fast. Um, and it, it reminded me, I mean, I, you know, uh, it reminded me of the dot-com days. Uh, where where money just flew was flowing in and anybody that had a dot com was you know they were raising 20 40 50 million bucks and they had just no concept you know they had no idea how to actually deploy that capital and uh, and that and that's kind of what happened here too I think uh, I mean sure there were a few bad actors but I agree with you I don't think that there were nefarious people out there trying to you know bilk people's money there were a few tell me about your view or outlook for 2019 and beyond in terms of adoption how fast is this going to grow um what are you thinking yeah um so excellent question 2019 we're extremely excited about so so we have experienced um 337 percent uh, uh licensed medical professional user growth year over year um and that's is speeding up um and also we this relationship with the American Heart Association is uh, is gaining speed, uh, and we are we are um, launching some very massive initiatives prior to the end of this year uh, that we foresee um, even potentially higher than three hundred thirty seven percent growth, which is just astronomical growth. Um, so so yeah, big year this year. Um, it, it, we, we know it's going to be a big year this year. 2020 is going to be um, yet another breakout year. We're, we're really just getting started in a lot of ways um, and um, very excited about some of these relationships that we've started with some of the states um, who are looking at DLT and blockchains as legitimate 
digital notarization systems uh, and, and what kind of doors those are that's going to open as well. I just have a feeling Wyoming might be one of them just because they are very vocal about their blockchain, um, their push on blockchain. I'm, I'm not going to say anything. But, sure, but, no problem. Uh, but, but, um, I'm, sure you're, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure your team is growing as well. Uh, I do see you have a couple open positions. Um, you want to talk a little bit about them, the general counsel and public relations manager? Yeah, so, um, you know, we're growing uh, and and you know, when you first start these ventures, you know, you're very hand to mouth and you're, you're, you're trying to do everything. Uh, and then you kind of get some runway and, and then you start to fill in the gaps. And um, so, so general counsel is, is uh, very wise for us at this point, just because of the fact that we are um, moving very quickly and we're moving into um, a, a number of, this is uncharted territory. I mean, sure. really, uh, you, you know, the, the, the agreements and contracts that we're drawing up, we have to get a lot of legal opinions because this technology does things that no other technology has ever done before. So we have to uh, be careful and proactive uh, and, uh, and, and very um, uh, open to, to guidance. So, so that's, that's what that uh, we're looking at that. PR manager, you know, we, we, we have so much – uh, we have so much going on in, in social media. We have so much going on with events. We have so much going on in the press. Um, we have a, you know, the, the healthcare space is a very niche, a niche space in, in, in journalism. Um, and so we, you know, we're, we're getting more and more requests and it just makes sense. Now we've gotten to that point where we need somebody to really manage that and kind of manage the brand positioning in the media, uh, and start to grow kind of, um, the image and, and, and the way that we're uh, perceived in the marketplace. Can you tell me a, a business person or entrepreneur that you look up to or have looked up to? Ah, wow, that's a good one. Um, you know, I have a few, uh, a few famous ones and a few not as famous ones. Um, um, so, you know, a guy I've always admired, and I, I think it's just his, his uh, style, is uh, Richard Branson of Virgin? You know, uh, I, I, I just I've always uh, I've always gravitated to his his. I don't know him personally. Wish I did. Um, you know what's uh, funny? I I think that um, Anthony Begeno might have said had the same answer. <laughs> yeah, from Progredix. You know, I mean, the thing about I here's think. the thing about Richard Branson. What I love about Richard Branson is uh, he's an adventurer. Right. I mean, you know, it takes the, you know, I, I don't know if people know this, but, you know, he, he, he sails his boats all over the place. He, he took a hot air balloon, tried to go around the world multiple times. Uh, the guys, you know, he's got this thing for space. He, he, he reminds me of like that, those turn of the century adventurers, like, like Sir Ernest Shackleton, who, you know, the endurance that went down to try to get out of the South Pole, uh, you know, and, um, I, I've always been fascinated by these guys. He's a groundbreaker, uh, and, and he's a humble dude. I, I just there's just something so appealing about this guy, and and he's not pigeonholed into one industry. He he's managed to be successful and in, in in many industries, and he's also failed in a few things. And yet, the, he he just is a dynamic figure. I've I've always uh, uh, admired him from afar. I hope I get a chance to meet him someday. Uh, I, I find him fascinating. Um, 
there's a guy here in town, actually in Austin, uh, who's a, who's a, who's I, I don't want to say he's a close friend, but he's an acquaintance of mine. His name is Brett Hurt, and he is um, he was the founder of a company called Bizarre Voice, and uh, Bizarre Voice is kind of the back end engine uh, and one of the very first um, um, like review platforms for uh retail online retail so like when you go and you put four stars in and you put your little uh you know your little blurb about hey i love this thing and i'm a verified purchaser and i you know i love this cooler or whatever um he was the one that that uh developed that and designed that system and bizarre voice is like i don't know i think they're a billion dollar company now but but he so he 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 exited years ago it's on the nasdaq uh and he's launched all these other companies uh He's just a really interesting guy. Um, he's a he's a um, a visionary. He sees trends before others, uh, and uh, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. Uh, love that. And then and then finally, I'd say uh, uh, Michael Andretti. Uh, so I'm a big race fan, and uh, the the Andrettis. I had a chance to work with them uh, in the past, and um, Michael. Um, kind of like Enzo Ferrari was, you know, he, he, he was just a racer and, and he wanted to race. And so he, he built, he developed this business in order to just get to the track on Sundays and race. And that's what Ferrari did. Ferrari did not want to sell cars. That was not what he wanted to do. He wanted to race cars. And the, the only way he could support that habit was by selling cars. And, and so it became this hugely successful thing, but his passion was really racing. And so, so those I think those are the three that come to mind. Do you have any recommended reading or like favorite books that have influenced oh, yeah. your life? Uh, that's a great question. I, I think I think uh, my all-time favorite from a from a from a business perspective um, is um, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by uh, by Covey. Um, you know, as a, as you grow an organization and as you uh, move through all these different stages of a business. Um, there are certain principles and certain habits that you you must um, be at least fundamentally good at. I'm not going to say perfect because that's not the case, but you have to have certain um, a certain skill set with people mm-hmm. uh, and communication and 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 and. One of those things is is the proper management of expectations and communicating the proper management of expectations uh, with investors, uh, with 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 new hires, uh, with technology partners, and and managing those promises and those expectations properly is is really the um, the difference between success and failure in any venture, in my opinion. John, uh, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, is there anything else you want to tell the audience? Something I might have missed? No, I I, I really appreciate the interview. I, I I think what you're doing in your podcast is important. Um, I think it's great that people are starting to want to learn about blockchain and DLT. Um, I think this is uh, what you're doing is 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 good work and. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity, man. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Hey, y'all, you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org. And remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, 
SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.